I'm going to invite uh, Rowan Kemp to come up. Uh, Rowan is the leader of the EU staff team. Uh, he's been with us for about um, 10 years and he's going to be teaching us the Bible from Genesis this semester. Before that happens, I'm going to read the Bible. So if you want to open to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We're skipping to uh, Genesis 1:31 now. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Uh, I'm just going to pray, and then I'm going to invite Ron to come up. Um, Father God, thank you for uh, the EU. Thank you for public meetings and the opportunity to look at your word. Um, thank you for your word, and I ask that we would be uh, listening um, intently to it and to uh, Rowan as he preaches from it to us. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Sam. Good to see you here at the first Thursday EU public meeting for the year. Okay. The EU, in its wisdom, each year chooses one book of the year, a book from the Bible, that they want to spend about half of their public meetings looking at in some detail over the course of the year. This year they've chosen the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Christian Bible. So they've asked me to give half the public meetings this year on the book of Genesis. We're going to do that in sort of three chunks through the year. First four weeks of the year, now leading up to Easter. We'll do another chunk later in first semester and another chunk in second semester. The other times during the year we'll be doing other sorts of things with other different speakers. But the book of the year this year is the book of Genesis. So that's what I'm here to help us work through together. Now, Genesis is a big book. Can't look at absolutely everything that we're going to find in the book of Genesis. But my hope over these first four weeks is that we'll look in some detail at Genesis 1 to 3. Today, we're going to start with Genesis 1. Now, Genesis 1 is a very controversial part of the Christian Bible. Uh, it's often been a point of ridicule towards Christians. How could you possibly, given contemporary science, believe what's written in Genesis 1? I don't know if you know some of the details of what's written in Genesis 1, but that the, that the one true living God created all that exists in the universe in seven 24-hour periods... Really? You would hold that? Well, when you read it in detail, you see that on day one, God separates light from darkness. He creates darkness, sorry, he creates light and darkness, but it's not till day four that he creates the sun and the stars, which we know from science are the source of light. So how does that work? Or if you go to day two, he separates the waters from the waters and creates the sky, the firmament and there's waters below the sky, and there's waters above the sky. Really? If I go up far enough, eventually I'll hit the sort of cosmic lake in the sky? Really? Is that what... Is that... You believe that? 
You can see how Genesis 1 has often been a point of ridicule directed towards Christians. But also it's been a point of some significant controversy between Christians over how should we understand Genesis 1. Should we read it literally? Should we read it metaphorically? Is it, um, a, is it like a parable? Or, or how we, so it's a point of ridicule and it's a point of controversy. So what are we going to do with it? Well, the best thing to do with Genesis 1, apart from pray, which is what we've just done, is then actually read the text itself. Before you actually start um, tackling the questions of how it interacts with modern day cosmology and science, you need to actually read the text yourself. right? So if you've got your Bible here, it'd be really helpful if you could open up to Genesis 1 or call it up on your phone or something. Uh, that'd be great if you could open it up. Let's have a look at it and let's start with Genesis 1 itself and see what do you notice when you read through Genesis 1. I'm going to throw a whole bunch of information at you fairly rapidly. If you can't jot it all down or remember it all, that's okay. You can search online and find the Prezi anyway eventually um, because it's all public. So you can um, touch base with the detail later if you like. But I'll just try and give you a feel for it. What do you notice when you read through Genesis 1? The first thing you notice is that Genesis 1 is a very highly stylized account. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's got lots of patterning evident in how it's been formed as a piece of literature. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, first thing. Well, doesn't like when I do that. Okay. Right, that's better. The account in Genesis 1 is structured over seven days. Those seven days reflect the fact that in for the Israelites, this document comes from the ancient Israelites, the Israelites had seven days in their week. So there's just a, there's a, a deep consistency there, right? Seven days in the creation account, seven days in the Israelite week, culminating in both cases in the Sabbath day, the day of rest. Just pointing that out as a starting point. What else do we notice? We notice that each day starts the same way. Each day starts with, and God speaks. He, and God said. He speaks stuff. In, that's how he creates, by his word. What else do we notice? Each day ends the same way. We're told at the end of each day, and there was evening and there was morning. Now, get that right, right? There was evening, ending the day, and then there was morning, transitioning you through into the next day at the end of the sixth day. So, for, in the Israelite way of thinking, the day starts at dawn. That's not, not at midnight, it starts at dawn, right? So, there's evening and there's morning coming into the very next day. What else do you notice in this highly stylized account? There's a repeated pattern. Each time God speaks and then you're told often, and it was so. You can see this in a few different places. Uh, if you've got your Bible there, have a look. Verse 3, we're told, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Or verses 6 and 7, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water, so God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. Or verse 9, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. You get the idea, repeated phrase throughout there that when God speaks, it is effective. But there's more patterns as well. There's also this repeated phrase, And God saw that it was good. Repeatedly throughout the account, each time we're told God saw it, whatever the thing is that he just made, 
and it was good. You can see it in verse 4, verse 10, verse 12 and so on. But there's even more patterning going on here. You may not realise this next one, but there's a mirror, mirroring happening between days 1 to 3 and days 4 to 6. What I mean is this, I'll try and show you in a, in a diagram. On day 1, God separates the darkness from the light, but when you get through to day 4, God then fills that space, as it were, with lights. He creates the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night and the stars as well. So day one sort of sets up the space, day four sort of fills the space. That pattern continues. So day two, God separates the waters below from the waters above, creates the sky, the expanse. And when you get across to day five, God fills those spaces. He creates the fish to swim in the waters below and he creates the birds to fly in the, in, in the air, in the expanse that has been created. And it keeps going. When you get down to day three, God gathers the waters together so that dry ground appears and then he creates vegetation to spring up from that land. But when you get jump across to day six, God then puts creatures on the land. He puts the elephants and the massive mice that they had back then. <laughs> Megafauna, I'm assuming. Anyway, he creates the, creates the animals and he creates human beings there in day six. So you see that this patterning that's going on, one, two and three, days one to three sets up the space, days four, five and six fill the space. All I'm saying is it is a very highly stylized account just as a piece of literature. So that's the first thing to notice about Genesis 1. What's the second thing to notice? second thing to notice is this. Genesis 1 makes some really important theological points. It makes some really important statements about who God is, how he acts in the world, and the status of what he does. So let me explain those a little bit to you. First of all, you can see who God is What you see when you look in Genesis 1 is that God alone creates. When you read all of Genesis 1, the only person who's really creating things, doing things, it's it's God himself. He creates alone. He's driving the whole action. Now, this is very unlike other ancient Near Eastern creation stories where maybe their explanation for how the universe comes into existence is because Various gods are having a fight with each other and as a result of that conflict, boom, out out springs the universe. Or it might be that there's a divine being who's fighting cosmic forces of evil and there's some sort of battle and out of that, out comes the universe. But Genesis 1 is really different actually. God is here alone. He creates alone and he creates in absolute freedom. No one forced him to do it. He creates an absolute freedom and with incredible power. So it tells you something very significant about who God is. That he, creates, he alone creates, he creates in absolute power and with absolute freedom. Furthermore, unlike some of the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, God is not confused or embedded within his creation. Have you ever wondered why some ancient cultures worship the sun? It's not just because they think the sun's awesome and they therefore worship it. It's because they actually think that a god has sort of is embedded within 
has taken up residence within, is sort of part and parcel, makes his presence known in the very presence of the Son and so that they worship it as divine. Whereas Genesis 1 is very clear, the God who creates it all stands apart, distinct from everything he creates. He's not to be confused with anything in his creation. So it tells us some important things about who the one true living God is. It also though tells us how he acts in the world. It tells us that he acts by speaking each day, start, and God said, let there be light. Let there be an expanse. God speaks, he creates by his word. That's going to be really important as we'll see later on. But it also tells you about the status of what he does. It tells us that all God makes is good. Time and time again, we're told on the way through, God saw what he made and it was good. In fact, day six culminates in God sees all that he has made and behold, it is very good. And as you read through the rest of the Bible, you'll see this is not just true about God making stuff, about his creation work, it's true of all of the one true living God's work in the world. It is good. What he does is good because he is good. That's who he is. So, there's some things that just reading Genesis 1 tells you, right? Highly stylized account telling you some really important theological truths about who God is, how he acts in the world and the status of what he does. And you might be saying, oh, well, that's all well and good, but still, what do we do about the science? Fair enough. I I get that that's a big question, right? So, how does Genesis 1 fit then with contemporary science? What do we say about that? Well, I've got five different possible options for you about how Genesis 1 fits with science. The first option is the standard non-Christian response. The standard non-Christian response to this question, how does Genesis 1 fit with science, is science wins, Genesis 1 is rubbish. That the whole universe was created in seven 24-hour periods, ridiculous. That there was light before there were stars, nonsensical. That there's water above the sky, no one believes that. No one anymore believes that, right? So clearly science wins, it's reliable, Genesis 1, a piece of pre-scientific fiction. That's the standard non-Christian response. And maybe you've had interactions like that with people. Maybe if you're not a Christian, you're going, yeah, preach it, that's exactly what I think. Like, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's the standard non-Christian response. Now, for myself, as an evangelical Christian, that is someone who takes the Bible seriously as the inspired word of God, the authoritative word of God, that's not an option for me, right? I know that this is God's word to us. And Christians, though, have not all agreed on how we should read Genesis 1. Evangelical Christians who hold to the authority of Scripture haven't all agreed. And so I'm going to put out to you four different ways that evangelical Christians have actually tried to deal with this question of how does Genesis 1 fit with science. Some of these you may resonate with. You might go, yeah, that's exactly what I think. And some of you, and then some of the other ones, you might go, I've never ever thought of that before. But we'll see where this gets us. Okay, so four different ways. Here's the first way. What's called young earth creationism. This view says the way you should read Genesis 1 is literally. God doesn't make mistakes. He's written it originally through the human author in Hebrew, translated into English. You should just read it 
with a plain, clear reading. Just read it literally. Now, if you have this particular view, using the rest of the book of Genesis and looking at the different genealogies that are laid out there, where you're given the ages of different people at which they had kids and stuff, you can actually construct, if you take all of those numbers literally, you can construct a bit of a timeline, an age. In fact, when people do that, they work out that if you take all those literally, that the earth, therefore, apparently, would be about six to 10,000 years old. Some people have gone so far as setting an actual date. I think that's probably a bit dodgy. Myself. No offence to you if that, you actually hold that. But I think six to 10,000 years old. So that means about 10,000 years ago, God made all of this. Now, the big challenge for young earth creationism is that science has a very different view of the age of the earth and the age of the universe. Science, contemporary science, reckons that the earth is about 4.5 billion years old and that the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. Now, maybe you're not a maths person, but let me just tell you that there is quite a big difference between 10,000... I know 10,000 seems like a very big number to you, but 10,000 and 13.8 billion is massive. The difference between those two views is huge. So that's the first one. What's What's the conclusion of young earth creationism? Young earth creationism, the conclusion is, I need to understand the Bible literally, so therefore the science must be wrong. That's one view. Second view, old earth creationism. Old earth creationism says, oh, maybe the, the, the way that the word day is used in Genesis 1 doesn't need to be understood literally. And they argue this by looking at the rest of the Old Testament and they say sometimes the word, the Hebrew word for day is used for a period of time. Maybe Genesis 1 is not describing seven 24-hour periods, but it's describing seven ages or epochs. But that Genesis 1 would still under this view, give you the sequence of events, but maybe they t- each event took a very long period of time. A uh, variation on this one is, maybe it is seven 24-hour periods, but they're separated by very long um, gaps of time. On either sort of reading, you can, have, you can accommodate a scientific uh, old Earth of 4.5 billion years or an old universe. And so that's how some people would do it but they would say that the sequence of events is still given as according to Genesis 1. Okay, that's the second view. Third view, what's called the framework view. The framework view is that, look, because you notice Genesis 1 is so highly stylized, and in particular, that idea that day 1, 2 and 3 is then mirrored with days 4, 5 and 6, which fill the spaces from 1, 2 and 3, it clearly, under this view, is a literary device that is trying to set out for you, yes, the theological truth that God made everything, but it's not necessarily telling you the exact chronology. It's just setting up a framework so that you can understand it. So it's not necessarily chronologically true under this view that God made the light before he made the stars. It's just in terms of a logical, literary-type presentation, it sets up a framework. So it doesn't give you chronology, it just gives you the logic of it and the theology. That's the framework sort of view. So maybe you're more comfortable with that. 
I want to give you one other view. Uh, you, you may not. This is you probably not really ever thought of this before. Uh, I didn't make it up. Um, but also, it's probably the hardest to get your, get your mind around. This is the view that Genesis 1 concerns functional creation rather than a material creation. I need to explain this to you. Seems to me that when we ask our question, how does Genesis 1 fit with modern science? Seems to me that that's the wrong question. Seems to me that's a question that occurs to us as a very obvious question to ask, but maybe it's not the first question that we should be asking. As people who believe the Bible to be the authority of the Word of God, as people who want to be responsible readers of this text that God has given us, there's a prior question you have to ask. The first question you always have to ask reading any part of the Bible is, what, how would the original readers of this text have understood what was written? Because God works through human authors writing in a particular point of time and a particular culture, the first question you need to ask is, how would this text have been understood by the original hearers? Now, when you ask that question, I think it's quite likely that the original readers would have been more concerned with functions than materials. See, the question that we bring in the text, which we think is, you know, where did the world come from? Where did the stars come from, the plant, us? How did it all come into material existence? From whence did it pop? That's what we want to know. But that in itself, I think, is a question that goes back probably to Greek philosophy, probably with the Greek distinction between the uh, physical and the spiritual or the body and the soul, that preoccupation with material questions, the material origin of things, has then, through Greek philosophy, brought us into what we call the scientific worldview. It's dominated the scientific worldview. We're concerned with materials, where they come from, how they, what they do. And so when you and I think of creation, you and I immediately think of where did stuff come from? How did it pop into existence? But if that started with the Greeks and now dominates our scientific worldview, that does not mean it was the question that the original readers of Genesis 1 would have been asking. So if you'd gone to an ancient Israelite and said to them, did the one true living God make all the stuff that you can see? Did, you know, the, all this sort of material stuff. Did he bring it all into being? They would have said, well, of course. How else could the stuff have got here? Of course God made it. But that's not the question they would be terribly interested in. What the question they're more likely to be asking are things like, but what's God's relationship to this stuff? What's the purpose of this stuff? What's its function? Who gave it its function and its place within the universe? That is, creation was more about ordering the stuff, giving it functions and purpose, not bringing the stuff into material existence. So let me show you a couple of pieces of evidence in Genesis 1 that I think point in this very direction. First of all, do you notice in verse 2 that there's pre-existing stuff already there which the text does not tell us that God made. In verse 2, we're told that the waters and the deep, they're already there. Where did they come from? Some people may say, oh, it comes from verse 1. I actually think verse 1 is a heading 
that covers all of the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created, it's the heading that says, this is the account of creation that we're entering into. You jump then into verse 2 and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And the waters? When, when, did, when did that happen? When did he make the waters? There's this pre-existing stuff there. Now you and I think, oh, that's a problem. He has to make... The... No, it's because you, you and I are worried about when he makes all the stuff, when he calls it into existence. But maybe that wasn't their question. The question is, what's God going to do with this stuff? Here's this disordered mass of water. How is he going to bring order and purpose and function to this? And in fact, the very word translated create doesn't have to always mean bring into a material existence. It can also mean, in the Old Testament, to give something a function. So we're not stepping out on a particular limb here. And third, you'll notice that at various points in Genesis 1, there is an explicit emphasis on purpose and function. You can see it in uh, maybe days 3 to 6, for example, verse 14, there in day 3, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky, and now notice he gives... He ex- explicitly names functions to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth. Notice those purpose clauses there and similarly you can find verses 17 and 18 plus in the commands to be fruitful and multiply. I think we're all about function and also uh, there in verses 26 to 30 about the creation of humanity in God's image, which we'll look at next week. Uh, John Walton is a Christian thinker who's uh, talked about this, and this is what he says. He says, Cosmic creation in the ancient world was not viewed primarily as a process by which matter was brought into being, but as a process by which functions, roles, order, jurisdiction organisation and stability were established. Creation was an activity of bringing functionality to a non-functioning condition rather than bringing material substance into a situation in which matter was absent. So under this view, Genesis 1 is actually not, it's not answering the questions that we think it's about. It's not actually talking about where did the stuff come from. Of course God made all the stuff, but the question the text is actually seeking to answer is who gave it all its function? What is its function? What's its purpose? It's concerned with that type of creation, order into the chaos. Well, I wonder what you make of all that. Well, what I'm going to get you to do, I'm going to see if you can interact with that a little bit by getting you to watch a video. So we're going to watch a little bit of a video and then I'm going to get you to talk with the person next to you about it. Now, in this video, it's a video of a young earth creationist man talking with Richard Dawkins, who's an atheist um, biologist and an evolutionary biologist, and they're having a discussion about Genesis. My question to you is this. Say we put you as the third person in this panel discussion, and you're trying to present the functional understanding of Genesis 1. What would you say? Right? What would you say? So let's watch the little video. They're talking a bit about prophecy. Don't worry about that. They're going to get jump into Genesis about now. Genesis. 
Genesis right. mentions the loads, and what about the Babylonian exile, Jeremiah, prophet? That, that's not relevant to the book of Genesis, where you, you say, on the strength of the book of Genesis, you believe that the world is, what, only 6,000 years old, something like that? Like that? Yeah. Now, that, as you know, flies in the face of all the scientific evidence, it flies in the face of all the bishops, all the archbishops, cardinals, pope. No, why would you, but stop, yeah, well, I, um, why would you put your money on the book of Genesis, nothing to do with Jeremiah, nothing to do with Micah, it's the book of Genesis. Why would you put your money on that when all the scientific evidence shows, and I mean not a little bit of evidence, but massive quantities of evidence show that the world is four and a half billion years old. It, I mean, it's absolutely open and sharp case. Look at the science, you can't deny it if you would only look at the science. Okay, well, you asked me the question, why would I put my faith in Genesis? It is a difficult book, given um, that there is so much so-called evidence to the contrary that of what we, what scientists are talking about as that you know the Earth is millions of years old, etc. But Jesus, and I do believe one hundred percent that Jesus did walk this Earth and did the things that he did, and because there are more manuscripts written about the, the accounts. Uh, yes, because we're not talking Jesus, we're talking Genesis. Well, let me get Is that Jesus referred to Genesis. Okay? And in there, he, he, he's not a liar, um, and he's a man that, or a being that I would trust. And he spoke about, in the beginning, you know, was Adam and Eve, for example. And he also talks about it talks about in Colossians that he, Jesus, is the one who created all things. Okay. So if if Jesus is the one that I accept, then why should I deny Gen the Genesis account? Because otherwise I'm saying Jesus is a liar. Well, um, if you're tying Jesus to a belief that the world is only or is only six thousand years old, you're not doing Jesus any favors because what you're in effect saying is that Jesus was anti-scientific, and I don't think Jesus would be very pleased about that. Um, no doubt he was ignorant of science because he lived at a time when he did when science was not, not developed. But if I were you, I would not deny <coughs> Jesus. He last. Well, um, if you look at, and I was reading again this morning, some of the wisdom that he had, uh, we could do with today, for sure. Well, I believe that may be true, but nevertheless, if I were you and you loved Jesus, I would not tie Jesus to the belief that the world is only 6,000 years old because you're tying Jesus to an error. You wouldn't wish to do that. So we put you on the panel. You can join them. And you decide to try to talk about Genesis 1 as a functional creation rather than material creation. Talk with the person next to you. How would you do that? Now, I'm not saying that you need to, need to adopt a functional understanding of Genesis 1. I'm just saying that I think it's got some, I think it's got some substance to it. Um, but it's not the only view, as I've tried to say to you, that the Christians hold. And you, you hold a different view, and that's fine. Uh, and indeed, for a critique of the functional view, you could look up John Lennox, who's another great Christian author. His great little book, Seven Days That Shook the World on Creation, he, he takes issue with... Um, John Walton sort of functional approach. I'm not trying to push one particular line. I'm just trying to say I think there's some different um, options out here for trying to understand Genesis 1 more deeply in the way that it was originally intended to be understood. So I'm just trying to put that out to you. Some other resources you could chase up. 
there was a great talk last year by uh, Jimbo, one of the EU staff uh, on science and religion, and uh, you can get that hopefully on the EU website. You can find the podcast of that, and he had a great prezi, but I don't know where that is. Is that publicly available? It is. You can look for it there. You'll find it. So there's some other resources out there as well. But what I want to do uh, is this whole question of how science fits with Genesis 1, I know that it's a burning question for many of us, and it it fuels many internet fights, but actually it's not the most important question. The really important question actually should be, how do you respond to Genesis 1 if it's God's word? And I just want to say, Genesis 1 is such a rich chapter of the Bible, we could spend the rest of the year thinking about its implications, which we're not going to do. So I've just got one screen to show you instead. It helps establish the goodness of this creation. Christians aren't anti-creation, they're not anti-sex, they're not anti-enjoyment because Genesis 1 helps establish the goodness of creation. Genesis 1 is foundational for a Christian understanding of ethics, of how God sets things up in terms of nature and kinds with purpose. So it's foundational for that. Uh, It's an important chapter for understanding what does it mean to be human, to be created in God's image. And we're going to actually investigate that next week here at Public Meeting. We'll look back into Genesis 1 to that particular question. But the two questions I want to just focus on in the last few minutes I've got, what does a God-honouring response to Genesis 1 look like and what the heck does any of this have to do with Jesus? Okay, so first of all, What's a God-honouring response to Genesis 1 look like? Well, interestingly, I think the place you can go to understand how you should respond to Genesis 1 is the other end of the Bible. If you go to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, John the Apostle has been given a vision there and this is what he says. Let me read it to you. John says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair. I mean, it's a vision he's got, right? There's angels. There's, it's all a bit strange. But then he says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. Gospel just means grand announcement, right? So here's this angel, a messenger from God, with an eternal, that is true for all time, message from God to be announced to all people, of every race, nation and land. He said in a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's God's eternal message to all of his creatures. Worship him who made it all, who established it all. That's God's message to all people, in all places, at all times. That's God's message to you, to me, to everyone at this university, to your lab partner, to everyone. Worship him who Genesis 1 tells us made it all. Now you may not think of yourself as much of a worshipper, maybe not something you really do, but yet every single one of us give ourselves voluntarily to serve something or someone. Maybe for you it's your parents and their expectations of you. Maybe that's what you give yourself to. That's what sets the course of your life, the parental expectations. Maybe for you it's something else. Maybe it's your own ambition for success, for importance. Maybe it's your drive for sex or for money or for travel or for just experiences. 
Maybe it's your deep need for friends that drives you. Maybe it's your deep need for revenge that drives you. Maybe it's your determination to be absolutely free of any constraint from anyone else. Whatever it is, that's the thing you're giving yourself to. In Bible language, that's the thing you're worshipping. That's what you're giving yourself to in service. But the message of the Christian Bible is that we've been made to worship the Creator, not His creation. And verse chapter 14 of Revelation is very clear, right? Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. This is not a message from God that you can put off because the hour is coming, the Bible tells us, when we will all stand before Jesus, the one he has raised from the dead to be judgeable, we will all stand before Jesus as our judge and answer for how we have worshipped. A right response to Genesis 1 is to worship the creator, not the creation. And talking of Jesus, there is a deep connection, and I'll finish with this, between Jesus and Genesis 1. The deep connection is that the New Testament understanding of who Jesus is is that Jesus is himself that divine word of God by which God created. You know how each day, and God said, he created by word, by speaking. That divine word took on human flesh in the man Jesus. So John the Apostle echoes the language of Genesis when he says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning... And then he says, that word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us and we have seen his glory. And he identifies that word become flesh as the man Jesus of Nazareth. Now it's no surprise then when you read about Jesus in the Gospels, which if you've never done, you really should. It's no surprise then that we see Jesus doing things that only the creator God could do. There's this story about Jesus being in a boat on, uh, in a massive storm and the other disciples are freaking out and Jesus is crashed out in the stern and they wake Jesus up and say, Master, Master, we're, we're going to drown. This is in Luke chapter 8. Jesus stands up and he says to the wind, be still. And he says to the massive waves, calm. And it was so. Who has that power? You or I stand up to do it and we'll be regarded as an idiot. But Jesus stands up and does it and, it and it is so. Is that a surprise though? Very interesting that later on, those same disciples, they didn't understand what was going on. Their response was, who is this guy? Who is this man? They say. But later on, after Jesus has died for the sins of the world and been raised to new life again, when he's taken up to heaven, those same disciples in Luke 24, they worship Jesus. But hang on, you're not meant to worship a creature. You're meant to worship the... That's the eternal gospel. You worship the creator. But they get... They know that. But they worship Jesus. Because he is the divine word, become a human being, and now Lord of all. Who are you worshipping? Don't worship the creation. Because the hour of our judgment is coming. Worship the creator. Worship the Lord Jesus who loved you and died for you so that you might live in him. Okay, the time is 1.52. So I reckon I've got 
like two minutes for questions before you need to scoot out, right? Anyone got questions? Yeah, go. Yeah, and so if you want to look at, actually it's not just the Israelites who are concerned with a functional aspect to creation. As I say, if you'd ask them, did God actually bring this stuff into material existence? I'd say, well, of course, where else could it come from? So they knew that God was the only source of material existence, but I'm just saying that I don't think that was their main question. If you go and compare other near East, uh, ancient Near Eastern creation stories, you will find similar concerns actually. It wasn't unique to the Israelites. If you look at some of the Babylonian sort of creation myths, you will find very similar concerns that there's often pre-existent stuff and what the gods do is they form or shape or separate, distinguish the stuff to create purpose, function and order. So you can, I can give you some references afterwards if you'd like to chase it up further. Yeah. Any other questions you'd like to ask? Okay, how about I close in prayer and then we'll head out. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word to be light in our darkness. We thank you that you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to be our saviour, king and our judge. We pray that you might, as you've promised, by your spirit, give us minds to understand your word rightly. Give us grace in our conversations with each other and please lead us into your truth that we might worship and honour you with all you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen.